0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, former mayor of Hamilton, Larry Deanney, weighs into the sewage on Sewergate. The Auditor General has said the $231 million estimate of canceling green energy contracts is reasonable. We'll discuss. And we talked to Carol Todd, mother of Amanda Todd. On the new announcements by the Ontario government regarding bullying. Will it help? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, City Council is meeting today. One of the motions being fra- brought forward is a apology in regard to SewerGate. Uh, of course, in case you don't know, um, news just coming forward uh, in regard to a, uh, I guess, an accidental spill, a gate left open and uh, uh, all kinds of sewage over the course of four years uh, going into, uh, into the Chido Creek, into Coot's Paradise and such. And uh, and we remember the issues uh, last summer in regard to the stench and such. Uh, found out that a gate or a, uh, a door of some sort left open, which allowed this to happen. Uh, and the broader issue here is that uh, once the city found out, uh, they didn't tell the public about that. To talk more about all of this, Larry DeAnne, former mayor, of city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Larry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Scott. Your thoughts on the mess that City Hall finds itself in right now?
1: Hmm. Well, um, so it's not good. Uh, so let's start there. That uh, 24 billion litres of uh, effluent went into the creek. Um, and um, and uh, it, over a four-year four period, because of a faulty gate of some sort. So that isn't good. Um the uh, the hysteria around it, though, I think is out of proportion um, because people aren't really looking for the facts. Uh, they're simply looking for somebody to blame, and that isn't good either.
0: Uh, should we have been told about this?
1: Yes. So, so here, here's my perspective um, uh, on the merits, and then we can talk about the apology as well. But by, my perspective is this. Uh, because, uh, you know, I've been, I've been there and so I asked myself, okay, what would I have done? You know, it's easy to criticize. It's easy to be sure. sort of an armchair quarterback, but what would you have done if you had been there? So you get a report that essentially says, look, um, of, uh, for four and a half years, this faulty gate was letting effluent into the creek. And the lawyer's opinion very strongly is that we need to be discreet about what we say. Otherwise, uh, we may face some increasing financial pe- penalties uh, if we are uh, reckless in what we say. So, you know, if a lawyer tells you that um, and staff tells you that, uh, you've got to heed that. you gotta, you got to listen to it, at least, and consider it in making your own decision as an elected representative. Uh, because I think elected representatives need to be financial stewards as well as environmental stewards. And if we're told that you know you do this, it's going to cost you more. Uh, then you got to be careful about doing this uh, to minimize the cost. Having said that, though, um, you know they've known about it for over a year, apparently, or nearly a year, uh, depending on 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 who you talk. To. It's even more than a year that they've known about it. Uh, so if I'd been in that meeting, my next question would have been: once I accept the fact that. You can't be reckless in what you say. My next question is, all right, but what's the communications plan here? Um, how, uh, this is going to get out. Uh, in fact, I'm Scott, shocked that it took a year for somebody mm. to leak this. Uh, it probably, you know, in, in the days I was involved, it would have taken far less than that. And given that this is going to get out, uh, but in spite of that, uh, there are some environmental imp- impacts here. What's the communications plan? Who do we need to tell? Uh, are there some neighbors? Burlington comes to mind. Uh, the uh, RBG comes to mind. Uh, Bark, um, the Bay Area Restoration Council, who have spent a lot of time doing the cleanup, comes to mind. Uh, and then, of course, the constituents. How do we bring them into this? Um, especially those who canoe in these waters. Uh, we need to let them know uh, what uh, what what the impact is. And the, and the overriding question, of course, is, you know, 24 billion liters sounds like a lot. My God, it is a lot. Yeah. But what is the environmental impact? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it long lasting? Uh, is it temporary? Uh, have we fixed that? And the other question, of course, is um, uh, how are we want to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Hmm. So those are all part of a communications plan. That had they done that, had council done that, would uh, they've been, uh, you know, uh, in front of this issue rather than now playing catch up?
0: Uh, you you talked about uh, the liability here and advice from lawyers saying uh, best not to disclose this at this point, opening opening yourself up to litigation, uh, compensation. But isn't compensation usually a result of some sort of damage? And if there is some sort of damage, shouldn't they be paying for it or us? I guess.
1: Yeah. So so. You know, I, I didn't read the lawyer the legal report. I'm only getting what I've read in the newspaper. And actually, if uh, if you read uh, uh, Andrew Dreschel's piece this morning, as I'm sure you probably have, uh, buried in that uh, in that report is some pretty strong um, uh, verbiage uh, uh, verbiage from the uh, uh, from the lawyers. Uh, you know, uh, telling counsel to exercise caution and concern. Um, so so that needs to be heated, but I, I I have not read and now I've, I've heard different opinions of about you know how uh, far that needed to go. Um, I, but not having read the entire legal report, I can't comment on that other than it should have been heated. but it should have been heated along with a communicate an appropriate communications plan so that so that you know we, we wouldn't have now people second guessing the honesty of counsel. You know, people um, uh, on Twitter, for sure, uh, but also in letters to the editor, wanting people fired, wanting people to resign. I mean, all of that kind of hysteria. Because what it does, when when you don't present information in an orderly way, uh, there's a vacuum created, and people just fill in the blanks. And they think the worst, and they expect the worst, and then they undermine uh, the, the the whole institution of government. Uh, let alone the individuals within that are undermined. And that's never good.
0: Do you think part of the reason that people are so inflamed about this, too, Larry, is uh, not only the fact that it happened, the fact that the information was withheld, and then when you uh, add that to situations like the Red Hill and the pavement analysis that was benched and, and, and shelved and never and never put forward, uh, you can see how the, the the public is becoming very suspicious about
1: this. No, absolutely, and I think I think there's a link. That can be made there. Um, uh, in that case, though, counsel was never told, uh, yeah. and so they can they can easily sort of say, "Well, gosh, we were never told. How can we report on something if it's being kept even from us?" In this case, they were told, um, and so people are saying, "Well, all right, you were told, and you didn't tell us, and uh, and uh, so on, and 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 the suspicions arise." Uh, I, You know, it, it's tough. It's tough because on the one hand, you're being told if you speak and if you're reckless with what you say, you're going to create financial hardship. Uh, and then if you keep quiet, you create the other uh, suspicions on the other side. Uh, you know, council had no and I want to cut them a little bit of slack here because they, they've they got nothing to gain by holding back on this. I mean, they didn't cause the problem. They didn't go out there and and say, you know, we don't want to fix a gate so that, the, you know, the effluent is kept on, on on the right side rather than into the creek. Um, they simply were motivated, I think, by strong legal advice that exercised caution. The only thing I, I, I give them uh, some some blame for is not asking the question, and maybe they did, and we don't know the full story yet, but not asking the question around the communications plan. So So when do we tell people? Uh, who should be told first uh, how do we release information so that we're not uh, keeping people in the dark who have the right to know whether we're you know the waters that uh, that they recreate on uh, are contaminated or or whether we we are not doing the right thing in terms of the environmental stewardship that's um, that that's our responsibility so all of these are are factors, but remember these are factors in the context of the city of Hamilton having spent tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, on these uh, combined sewer overflow tanks. Because before they were put in, the effluent went into the bay Mm -hmm. uh, and into the waters, into the creeks on a daily basis. That's why our harbor became a cesspool. And now that it's been brought back, uh, we don't want to see us slip back into those days. But council's activities, and I'm talking about generations of councils since the cso tanks were instituted have always acted responsibly so for them to willfully try to keep people in the dark um uh, just doesn't make sense to me and, and that's why the hysteria around the personal blame needs to put into a little bit of a context uh, around communications more than
0: finding uh that's a very valid point um that being said it has been a while since the city has known about it are you surprised they don't have an answer for us now they don't have a ready-made statement for when this did come out uh, for example exactly what happened exactly what went wrong here
1: yeah well and you see and that's all tied into the ministry investigation as well and as you can see it's a, it's a hot potato and so uh, there's finger pointing within council and there's finger pointing between uh, the the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the city and, and the province as to who should have said what to whom and when. Uh, and so that all needs to be sorted out. Uh, but yes, I, look, if you're going to err, uh, err on the side of, of laying out the story, uh, telling people exactly what's happening and what the impacts are. I read, uh, I read the mayor's uh, interview with a spectator yesterday, I think, and the important thing that he said to me was um, that there's no lasting environmental impact as a result of this event. Uh, and that's hugely reassuring. Now, people will listen to that and say, yeah, but how do we know? Well, that needs to be verified. I'm sure he wouldn't have said that if he didn't have some technical information that would have allowed him to say that. I know that the executive director of BARC last night, although I wasn't there, I heard from somebody who was there, um, they had a, uh, a meeting of some sort and he made a presentation, uh, and he had a very sane response to what happened and what's happening uh, both uh, in short term and as a result of of this, uh, of this uh, event that occurred over the last number of years. And although concerned about it, especially around the communication and not wanting to slip back, it wasn't a hist. I'm told it was not a hysterical, the sky is falling kind of presentation either. And uh, and so we need to balance those things. And I get the fact that, um, you know, the, the the media is interested in that, and people are, are cynical about uh, elected officials, and elected officials uh, can be criticized and should be criticized. They should be held to a high standard in terms of what they say to the public and how they manage their portfolios, uh, but also we need to balance it with the reality of what's happening.
0: So we are where we are now, Larry. How do you write this?
1: Well, at, at this point, uh, I'm told that they fixed the gate. Uh, now, uh, the, uh, the issue is, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? I mean, I was shocked to hear that uh, nobody looks at this equipment, this infrastructure. Uh, and for four and a half years, this was happening so how do we know that somewhere else the same thing isn't happening so they need to they need to deal with that and they need to find some way of uh, of reassuring the public that at least the infrastructure and the management of that and the supervision of that is going to be looked after in terms of uh, uh you know how do you heal the political wounds uh well you know apology well, maybe, and, and uh, you know, I don't know what, what good that does uh, yeah. in a practical way, but at the very least it might show uh, some, uh, some uh, expression of, of regret that that the issue, in terms of communications, wasn't handled better. Larry, I don't know whether that will satisfy the critics, though, let me tell you.
0: Larry D'Anne has been with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, sir. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. Ontario's Auditor General has looked at the government's $231 million estimate. And this is for uh, tearing up, cancelling green energy contracts that were, uh, I guess, signed during, well, were signed during uh, the previous uh, government and we all know what the electricity file was like under the uh, guise of Kathleen Wynne and the the refinancing that was done in order to lower the bills and pass that on to the next generation. Uh, Premier Doug Ford, when he came in, said he was going to tear up those contracts. Uh, the Ontario Auditor General has uh, looked at those and said that uh, the cancelling of the green energy contracts uh, have been deemed uh, and the costs involved in that have been deemed reasonable. Uh, She has not conducted a full audit. In order for that to happen, that has to be conducted uh, through the government of the day. Uh, And then, uh, as well, see what happens with the next set of books when the next audit is done. Uh, To talk more about all of this, uh, that being said, NDP, is uh, the Ontario official opposition, is asking for a full audit into this. Uh, Not happy or uh, or, uh, feel that it's enough just with... uh, uh, the Auditor General saying that this is a reasonable amount to pay. Uh, the other side would say, well, if we had left them in place, how much would we have been paying uh, for power? Uh, let's bring in Parker Gallant, Vice President, Wind Concerns Ontario, and is with us now. Parker, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi. Right. Hi Scott, uh, your thoughts on uh, what has been said in regard to the cancellation of these contracts and uh, the estimate of two hundred thirty-one uh, million dollars uh, that it will cost to cancel these?
2: Well, my view is that that's more than adequate. Should be more than adequate to uh, cover the cost of the cancellations. Most of them are small solar uh, contracts, and uh, you know, the if, if the individuals hadn't expended the money to buy the solar panels. They're not going to be uh, impacted to a great degree. I mean, they said they're going to put solar panels on their roofs, and they're going to get you know fifty cents a kilowatt hour or something when they generated power. Um, It's not; it wouldn't be a big deal. And so that was most of the contracts. The only one there was only one sort of large contract involved in all those seven hundred and sixty or so contracts they canceled. That was the White Pines um, the Wind Project, which is right here where I live in Prince Edward County. Mm-hmm. And it was only, uh, you know, it had been scaled back because uh, people had been fighting, fighting it, and it was only going to be nine wind turbines and uh, you know, a total capacity of 18.5 megawatts. And, you know, run the, if I run the numbers out on, on the nine turbines that were going to be erected in the county and that were allowed after the Environmental Review Tribunal hearings, um, my view is that they would have generated something in the order of uh, $160 million or $130 million over a 20-year period. And, um, you know, the, the issue is then do you pay them what they would have lost in terms of revenue, or do you just pay them for the costs of the turbines themselves? And there was five of them that were actually erected. The rest weren't. Uh, and my wife and I, the day before the, the the bill was finally got a third reading in the House, my wife and I drove down to where some of these things were going up, and there must have been a 100 workers running around trying to, you know, do what they could to get as much done as they could because they knew the cancellation was coming the following day. And uh, even then, uh, you know, those workers were, I think, probably called in for the day or two beforehand just to sort of, you know, try to get more happening. And they got up, I think it was about four or five of those turbines were actually erected and they have to dismantle them now, and yeah. they're in that process right as we speak.
0: Yeah, I'd heard that.
2: Right. And in my view is that, you know, those turbines, the five of them, would have cost, I'm you know, they're just over two megawatts each. They would have cost about $4 million per turbine. So we're not talking a huge amount of money. That's, you know, $15 million or something to that order for the turbines themselves. So if you're pay the capital costs, you know, that's what that's going to cost you. But a lot of those parts in the turbines would have, you know, can be resold to someone else, right. not as if they're, you know, going to be tossed in the garbage. Uh, so there's going to be some recovery there as well. And then the other precedent that's been set in the past, uh, The uh, there was a group of people trying to put up, uh, I think it was a very large offshore wind turbine called Wolf on on Wolf Island, off, offshore Wolf Island, or, uh, where the shoals are. And um, the the uh, IMF, uh, you know, has a hearing board that, you know, looks at these issues internationally. And I think that particular one they were suing for something like 500 million bucks. And they wound up getting, I think it was 28 million was what? Hmm. The previous government uh, settled for when that was cancelled by uh, by one of the energy ministers in, under um, uh, Mr. McGinty. So uh, if they only got 28 million, they're suing for 500 million. It doesn't sound, you know, unreasonable that they're not they're not going to to uh, be awarded, you know, when. Uh, the people that were running White Pines are not going to be awarded anything spectacular. Hmm. My view is that, you know, uh, at the most it might be 30, 35 million bucks, something like that.
0: Do we need uh, the Auditor General to investigate the cost of this?
2: I don't think so, no, not at all. I mean, if it runs over that, yeah, okay, let's uh, get, get her to investigate. But uh, this was, a, you know, a budget item that they uh, uh, they put in, And, you know, my view at looking at it was it's more than reasonable. It's not like moving the gas plants where we didn't know what was happening and and nobody would give us the answers to them. You know, I mean, the estimate for that one was, I think McGinty said, $230 million or something, and it turned out to be, as we all found out, over over a billion. So. It's nothing like that. It's
0: you know, uh, not- That is the issue that uh, NDP leader Andrea Horbath has raised uh, comparing this to the uh, McGinty gas plant situation where it obviously did uh, greatly rise in price to $1 billion. That was her concern and that was her reasoning for wanting uh, the auditor General to take a greater look at this. Is that not warranted considering what happened with the gas plants?
2: No, because the gas plants, you're, they were dealing, you know, the government at the time were dealing with some major corporations. And, of course, if, if you remember back to that particular election, that was the one where McGinty came in with, you know, he sort of squeaked in. And um, and there was uh, three key ridings, or uh, thereabouts, Oakville and, and Mississauga, that were in the liberal hands, but there was such a big objection to those gas plants going in locally that the Liberals were concerned that they were going to lose those seats, so they—that's why they said, "Oh, we'll move them." Then, so they moved one to the Sarnia region, and the other one is uh, is up near us, near uh, near in Napanee. And that that, that uh, gas plant, funnily enough, has just been acquired by OPG. They bought all of TransCanada's uh, gas plants that were operating here in the province.
0: What does that say?
2: Well, it says to me that the that the energy sector is being run by the people uh, in the, that know what's going on. Uh, I mean, I presume that uh, TransCanada, you know, wanted to cash in on the contract they had and you know walk away from it, and they did. They got two point eight seven million billion dollars, I think, for the gas plants that they owned in the province. So that was. Probably more than they spent and probably reflects... So they
0: got a good deal on them.
2: They got a good deal, yeah, right. Yeah.
0: Why scrap these deals? Many have said that the wind government came this far. Obviously, then a new government took over. They had different plans, but why scrap these?
2: Well, as it turns out, and, and uh, I've been uh, preaching this for some time, is we have a surplus capacity of uh, energy being produced, of electricity being produced in the province, and... Every day we're exporting this, and when we export it, we sell it for pennies on the dollar. You know, we're selling it for, you know, two cents a kilowatt hour, but we are paying, you know, uh, 13, 14 cents a kilowatt hour here to have it generated because of what is known as the global adjustment, and that global adjustment is not included in the market price. Uh, You know, it's a bid and uh, and ask sort of uh, market where, you know, if New York wants some extra power, they'll bid into the market and say, Well will buy your excess power at two cents in the dollar whatever. Yeah, or Michigan will do that. And so we wind up selling every day uh, a lot of energy and losing money every day. I mean, uh, Scott Left, a friend of mine, looked at uh, how much wind generation has been over the past 10 years And we're exporting 90% of the total amount of wind that is generated. So only 10% of all the wind we produce is actually usable here in the province. And IESO, who runs the grids, basically only gives them, uh, you know, they they look at that and say, oh, wind only generates and delivers power about 12% of the time when we actually need it. So why have we got all this, you know, surplus wind that we're paying ridiculous prices for if we don't need it? And, and I think that's what, you know, the message was that Ford said, but he didn't cancel the ones that were up and running. He just canceled the ones that were on the drawing boards, if you will.
0: Uh, and it appears like some were jumping the gun trying to get them built before the deadline.
2: Well, certainly White Pines was. Yeah. Really. Uh, that was an obvious thing when, as I said, my wife and I went driving down that street. It was just incredible how much activity was going on. Mm. Uh, you know, but that thing had been kicking around for, I think it was eight years or nine years that when the original contract was awarded, it took the, you know, the group that was building it that long to get at it.
0: Uh, lots of chatter about climate change, uh, very much an issue these days. A U.N. report just out saying we need to do more. As we transfer off of fossil fuel, will we not need this power in the very near future?
2: Well, you know, we really, I mean, the fossil fuels we have in this province, at least, is, are those gas plants. And those gas plants, basically, most of them were built to back up the wind and solar yeah. when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing they're not producing anything yet we may need that power so that's when the gas plants can you know uh, ramp up uh, or ramp down if the wind suddenly starts blowing again so you know we our, our energy sector is probably the one of the cleanest in in the whole world because we have no cool plants. we only have those backup gas plants but, um, you know, and the nuclear supplies about 60% of our power, and then hydro kicks in, you know, for another um, 30, 35%. So, you know.
0: So, really, when it comes to Ontario's electricity, uh, climate change isn't really that much of an issue.
2: No, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I was listening to Bill Kelly's show, and he had. Uh, a lady on from uh, environmental defense. And, yep. and they were talking about flooding and everything else and how climate change is causing it. And, I mean, I you know, I listened to the conversation there and the back and forth, and I, I was scratching my head because, you know, not many people have cottoned on to the fact that the International Joint Commission that runs and controls the water levels in the Great Lakes has has uh is operating now under what is referred to as plan 2014 and plan 2014's uh, uh, design was such that they wanted to create more wetlands around you know the uh, different lakes mm-hmm. all the all the great lakes so that meant that they were going to keep the water levels at a foot higher well they did that
0: many right? talked about this with the floods that we saw up in cottage country yeah. last year that there was a correlation there as well yeah,
2: yeah exactly yeah. so I mean, you know, but I hear, you know, disastrous things like that. I mean, my wife and I were married 38 years ago on November the 14th, and it was 80 degrees. It was like a June wedding. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, you know, if we see, you know, uh, uh, some warm days or some cold days, it's, it's normal, I think. Uh, weather does change quite frequently, and we've had hot spells and cold spells, when we don't expect them in the past, and, and I, I think we've gone a little bit overboard. I mean, man does. I, I,
0: I think where we've gone overboard with this discussion, Parker, is that again, what we saw yesterday from the from the UN. It's everybody screaming that we're going to hit this mark in 10 years. It is irreversible. We can't turn around. Uh, Here's where we're heading. Yet nobody talks about how we're to get there, what life will be like getting there or when we get there, and how much it's going to cost us. All we hear is we have to do something now and it's up to government to do something now. But nobody has any idea or is not willing to tell the public what we have to do to reach these targets. If we were to reach these targets in the next 10 years, how will it change life? And we're not having those discussions. Instead, the discussion is happening on the extremes where either you have deniers or, or, or the exact opposite and and, and and we don't seem to be coming towards a solution. All we hear is, look, see, the scientists say we're, you know it, this is going to happen. Okay, so how do we we get to those goals. What do we have to do in order to to maintain those and achieve those goals? And nobody is willing to have that discussion.
2: No, and the other thing that has happened as well is that the you know even the IPCC is, is has come out and sort of said. Things aren't as bad as as you know uh, the general public seems to
0: think they are, and it's almost as if if the politicians are going to tell us what it's really going to be like, they will never get elected again. No, so you they're know, living in caves. So right? again, we have false information here. We have hysteria, and we don't have a solution, and we don't have the facts. We don't have we we don't have the information that is needed to get us there.
2: Exactly, and and I think that's what's missing. I was reading, I'm watching a short little video uh, that's just been uh, put out out in the last few days, and it was a group of scientists who had signed uh, uh, a a declaration saying that uh, climate change is not as uh, everyone in the political scene believes. In fact, it's not nearly as bad as that and they backed it up. I mean there was 500 scientists that did this. And these were European scientists. And they presented it to the the council at Brussels, the you know the uh, European Union. And it was funny because the there was one individual that then uh, an MPP or whatever they call them over there um that was fighting, you know, the whole concept. Of, what do you mean it's not true? It's got to be true. You know, we're going to all you know perish in 12 years. Uh, and you know life on earth is going to be so much uh, uglier than it, than it is presently but it was quite as i said humorous they were saying well you know here's information that the ipcc provided and and she was not listening and that's what has happened we've we've kind of created this panic and and i think we've gone a little too far
0: Parker Galan has been with us, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. Ontario's Auditor General, ha- Ontario's Auditor General, has looked at the government's two hundred thirty-one million dollar estimate for canceling the green energy contracts uh, and deemed it as reasonable. Parker, thanks for the time and insight; much appreciated. Well, thank you for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, the Education Minister today announced. Uh, uh, an anti-bullying initiative that his government wants to implement, that uh, the Ford government wants to implement. And uh, basically, uh, today, Stephen Lecce, Minister of Education, announced five five new measures to prevent and combat bullying in Ontario schools to improve student safety and well-being. This includes the assignment of an MPP. Uh, former teacher to advise the minister on education matters with focusing on uh, special focus on bullying prevention a province province-wide survey to better understand students experiences with bullying uh, training for educators uh, for educators in anti-bullying and de-escalation techniques a review of school reporting practices on bullying and a review of the definition of bullying in ministry policies uh, to ensure it reflects the reality of today uh, obviously we here in this area Very sensitive to all of this, considering uh, what happened in the death of Devin Selvey, who was bullied and then uh, lost his life outside of uh, Winston Churchill Secondary School here in uh, Hamilton. Uh, There's been lots of chatter since then uh, about uh, studies and recommendations and such. Uh, Let's bring in Carol Todd. She is the mother of Amanda Todd. You might remember Amanda Todd, uh, 15 years old, took her own life after uh, being bullied online. And a, a video of hers that she did with a series of flashcards still resonating today and making an impact. Carol Todd is with us now. Carol, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
3: Thank you you thanks for uh, inviting me uh,
0: Carol are you are you amazed at how much impact Amanda's video still has and and how much her passing still has on on people on society
3: yes I do um, it's been seven years October 10th was the date that she took her life today's actually her birthday she would have been 23 today oh my um, and and I am amazed at how her story still resonates with uh, the, not only Canada, but around the world, and and it's when when I get messages from other people, and uh, even I don't know kids doing their master's thesis on anti-bullying, right? They Google they Google the topic, and her name pops up.
0: Mm. It,
3: it, yes, it it does. Amazing.
0: I didn't realize this was uh, would have been Amanda's birthday and perhaps wouldn't have called if that was the case. I apologize for that. That's okay. Uh, how do you cope with days like this?
3: Um, I think about all the good things that Amanda, her qualities. I think about um, the differences her story has made globally. I think about when... Parents see her story. They open the conversation with their children on behaviors of others. And then I see that um, when young people still, you know, when they see her video or see her story, um, they, they talk about it within their classroom space or they talk about it with their peers. And basically in my philosophy, it's if you see something, you need to say something,
0: mm. right? Uh, we obviously know the story of Devin Selby that uh, obviously made news around the country uh, as well. Um, here here we are some years later. Have we learned anything?
3: <laughs> we've learned that behavior looks like it escalates and because um, stories like this reach the news and it spreads, right? Um, we've learned that we need to continue to do more we've done in reflection in the last seven years since Amanda's death and the the nine years that all this had started to happen to her um, there's been lots of focus and lots of attention through education ministries um, through the government but there's there's people say well it's it's slow and coming and everything seems to be slow and coming but there have been things that have taken hold in different parts of our country and we just need to be our you know we just need to be the advocates and we need to be the voice and we need to talk more about what continues to to need to be done um especially when you know our, our students are in our schools and we hold them captive for six hours a day this is a good place to um, continue to do the education and do the awareness and do the talking out loud and the role playing and the modeling and the. But we also need to make sure that it continues in the home and in our communities and with school resource officers. And um, we've done a lot, but there's there's always so much more to do.
0: What is it like for? you to deliver a story to students about Amanda and what is their reaction what is the look on their faces when they see you do that
3: it's funny I don't although I do speak to students I don't speak to students Um, I think for the reason that Amanda died by suicide and that's still a stigmatized conversation um, of self-harm within uh, young people um, but when I do get the opportunity to speak to students, they are, on the most part, very silent. And they're listening because Amanda's story is a real story. And it, it, it hits, right? Um, Amanda's, the video that she made is, is timeless. And um, yeah. the, the things that happened to her are, are still happening out there. And the questions that we ask out loud. Um, as adults, is what can we do better?
0: Uh, Is this, well, I'll ask you, what can we do better?
3: We can teach about human empathy and compassion um, and and respect and behaviors because it all comes to, um, we blame technology a lot for the cyberbullying that happens out there. We blame technology for what, our young people are viewing out there, um, and we have to teach about the behaviors of, of others and, and how you feel when you see this and what you should and shouldn't do out there in, in real life. Now, take away the technology and um, is it, why is it, why do kids laugh when they see someone bullying someone else, you know, that, that mob mentality? And, and we have to be able to, to teach about human compassion and respect and, and how to treat others, right? Um, there are always those that have the negative behaviors, um, but we also need to talk to those people that are surrounding and watch it and, and let them know what they need to do um, if they see something or if they hear something out there in that's happening to prevent tragic stories, to tr- you know, to prevent tragic endings. And I believe the social-emotional learning side in education is um, of utmost importance and needs to be taught um, at an early age as, you know, young as you guys have junior kindergarten there, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't have to teach it in terms of the negativeness of bullying. We, we can teach it in other different ways. Well,
0: just to have empathy and compassion. Exactly. You know, you bring up a very, very valid point, Carol, because it seems, and we're seeing this in Hamilton, as soon as something like this happens, immediately there's meetings called, and we've got to look at the process, and how do we stop this, and how do we report this, uh, what is the protocol, what are the guidelines, and that all comes out after the fact. It starts with not having empathy and not having compassion for people. And it seems as if we're, you know, we're, we're chasing the wrong wrong end of this stick.
3: Well, there's, there's three levels, right? There's prevention, intervention, and reaction. And, and more times than not, we go into the reactionary phase where we need to look at the other end of the spectrum and go to the intervention phase. And the intervention phase is actually... Probably a lot more easier to to do than going, you know, doing the reaction and, and calming people down. So why are we not doing more at the other end? And you know, there's there's lots of research out there that talks about social emotional literacy. Right? We need to be doing a lot more of that um, to to our young kids. And then hopefully, the, as they grow older, it'll it'll stay with them. I mean, I you know I grew up in the 70s, and there was you had to be respectful, you had to be kind, um, and and yeah, there are there are still those, those stories, those stories of that's why you know our prisons, our court sure. systems are still full. There's still those individuals that don't get it, right? But I believe that in the school systems, that those kids can get it they can understand it, right? We just need to make sure that we integrate integrate, and include that in our teaching practices um, in every core subject area. It's not just for, you know, reading that the physical education teachers are going to talk about online safety. Right. Well, as, as technology is, is included with our learning every day, day to day, bring your own devices, um, you know, you're going to have to Use a, a platform to do your projects. We can talk about those things in every single core subject that that as teachers we teach. So why are not we doing that? And in the BC government, where I'm from, um, we have a erase program. Expect respect and safe something
1: mm-hmm.
3: safe education, right? And and that's been in our system for about eight years now and it's all about the practices on social emotional learning about what you should do if you see something um how you behave how you interact and there's also a reporting tool that if kids see something happening they can report um anonymously or with their name and and the report goes directly to their their safe and caring people um, administrators in their school right um it's there not saying that everyone will use it but at least it's there Right? It's like nine one one. It's fair. Like you need it.
0: Are we right. putting are we putting too much pressure on the schools to try to fix this? Is this a school issue or is this a societal issue? And again, I go back to what you said about empathy.
3: It's a society issue. It's not just a school issue. There's and and myself as an educator in the school system, right? Sometimes when I'm reading or I'm seeing messages and stuff, um, and individuals are, are saying that it's the school's fault, the school needs to do more. Um, yes, the school system can we can do more. We can we can talk about the social emotional literacy part, we can talk about behaviors, we can interact with our kids and have that open discussion. But that discussion needs to be followed up also in the home and the community. So, you know, if, if these young people know that Everyone is working on this, then it's going to absorb them more. Not that they just leave the school doors at three, three thirty in the afternoon, and it's all, it's all done. We don't have to talk about it anymore because bullying and cyberbullying, and it it disperses out of the school windows too, right? It happens everywhere, so we need to really clean up that gray line of well, the the bullying happened, you know, uh, using. Off the school ground, so as a school, we don't have to deal with it. No, we have to deal with it as a whole.
0: Uh, many will compare uh, today to the old days, and in the old days, this used to take care of itself. What has happened? What's different now?
3: Nothing really takes care of it itself. Um, we've integrated technology into our lives, right? So when something happens,
0: it's amplified.
3: In the it's amplified and it it, it moves on to um, social media platforms and then it spreads like wildfire because you have access to so many more people using um, applications that the kids are are definitely on, right? So there's no for the for the person who's being victimized and traumatized, there's no no hiding because the person that's doing the negative behaviors is is sharing it and. They've got their group that it continues to share it, right? It continues to to like it. So if someone posts something negative and it's liked, it's actually um, creating a positive effect on that right. person who's doing the negative behavior. Yep. So it strengthens them to keep doing it and do it more because they're getting the positive feedback.
0: Everything is about mm-hmm. likes. Everything is about getting likes. Yeah. yeah.
3: Unfortunately, yes. So we need to... We may not be able to get to the social media platforms to get rid of those, but we certainly have to teach our kids about the effects, the effects of negativity, right? And I, when I go and speak to kids, I say, So when you are, all, you're, when you're older and you have your own children, is this what you want for your children? And mm. the look in their eyes, even though it may be many, many years ahead, right? They think, No, this isn't what I want. And I don't want this for my siblings either. So you have to get to the, Root of the heart, and get them to start feeling before they can take it in in their brain.
0: Are the kids less empathetic because the parents are? Is this is this something we blame on the parents?
3: I don't want to blame anybody. Yeah,
0: yeah good <laughs> You know, point. It's,
3: it, it's a it's a really fine line to put blame on because I've been blamed for Amanda's behavior, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. And, and what she was doing online, and, and mm-hmm. I tried my very best. Um, I think that as as parents, we definitely need to educate ourselves about the the thinkings and the workings of a teenage brain because a teenage brain is very complex and maybe more complex than what we had to go through when we were younger because of, of what's in our society and, and what infiltrates, right? And so knowing how teenagers think and um, being able to... Have those conversations with your kids, right, is, is really important. And so that's where the onus comes in parenting is know what your teenagers, know the physiology the of, of your teenager and have those conversations with them because you want them, your teenagers, you want them safe, you want them sound, you want them alive. Um, and, and that goes, you know, with the bullying, there's detrimental effects of mental health. And so that's why we need to make sure that our, our adults out there understand.
0: Are things getting better? Because, again, you know, we, we all know the story of Amanda. We remember this. It, it broke our hearts. And, and, you know, here we are with Devin Selvi and it's the same sort of thing.
3: Mm-hmm. Are things getting better? Yes, there are more organizations, more research, more um, implementations. Being done, and I would hope that it would be nice if, you know, across Canada, everyone, the ministries, ministry of education had the same way of thinking so that if you move from BC to, say, Saskatchewan, the, the young, the families that move would, you would have the same kind of protocols and the same philosophies. Um, I believe that things have changed, like, there have been improvements in the system, but as I said, there's always, always room for more. And when a tragic story happens, it's amplified by social media, by the news, right? Um, and, and yes, it is worst case scenario, and I feel for every family that has to go through a tragic story or even, you know, the victimization, traumatization, PTSD of negative behaviors. Um, but it takes, takes a village to make change and to protect our kids and, and our families. So it's not just the kids we need to talk to. It's the whole... It's it's everyone around, It, it you know.
0: What said, advice do you have for for parents who feel that maybe they're involved in this in some way, whether the victim or the bullier? Um, as
3: parents, we need to like I said, learn more about the how our how our society is now, how our teenagers have changed, our young people, and then how to approach and what to say to them, because you don't want to approach that you're going to shut down your young person in talking to you. We need to encourage that that conversation. I've talked to many parents whose you know teenagers have come to them and reported something happening, and then the adults have taken action to make a negative turn into a positive and that's good you shouldn't be afraid to report something because if you see something happening you know on the streets and just just like the you know the the toronto the individual who was dumping human waste on people right Mm. When, when you catch sight of oh here's something or something happening you have to as a young person you have to tell an adult because teenagers telling teenagers they can't solve the problem mm. right until we start solving all like reporting and, and having the adults try and solve the problems and we can look at it and then we can talk about it right um, as I said real stories have an effect on kids mm. They they remember those real stories so Um, we really have to make sure that we talk to them a lot more and have them open up and talk to us as
0: adults. Carol Todd has been with us, mother of Amanda Todd. Carol, thank you so much for your time and telling your story and for your advocacy on this over the years. Thank you, Carol. Thanks.